Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever had your identity stolen? Just a few have had your identity stolen. So anybody ever had the sense that someone is out there in cyber world posing as you with your social security number, with your name, with your identity, doing all kinds of havoc on your credit score or whatever they try to do when they steal your identity. A couple of years ago, I got notified by the IRS that someone had filed a tax return with my name and social security number. There were actually quite a few people in Lake Oswego who had this happen. Anybody else have this happen? You did too, Rhonda. Yeah, so it was kind of a big deal but um, because it created a lot of fallout. There's a lot of restitution that has to be made with your protected identity in order to even file your taxes again. You have to have a secret code when you submit your taxes now when you've had this kind of identity fraud. But at the time, they let me know that somebody had filed a tax return, but they didn't have some information correct. And so it flagged um, them to contact me. And I was said, no, it wasn't me who filed a tax return. Obviously, I'm guessing they were trying to get a refund and not trying to pay taxes on my behalf. Um, but after that happened, then I went and secured identity theft insurance. Or, you know, there's companies out there who you pay to kind of watch over the cybersphere and make sure that your identity doesn't pop up. Well, two weeks ago, this company that I subscribed to let me know that my personal information has just surfaced on the dark web. Not a good place for your identity to be surfacing. I don't know what it is they have. I actually honestly haven't had the time in the last couple of weeks to investigate what exactly is out there. That's on my to-do list. But it was kind of unnerving to find out that, that my information is on the dark web. And it made me think, what is the dark net web? Aren't you curious? How many of you know about the dark net web? Several of you do. I have a graphic that you could put up for me, Brenton. Um, this is a brief image of what the dark net web is all about. It's a virtual world that is accessed through the World Wide Web. So the top of the iceberg there, that's the World Wide Net. That's the one that's above the line. That's what we all get on when we go to the Internet. We type in www and we're on the World Wide Web. Well, there is a whole dark net. There's a whole other web system that is, is deep below what we see. It's called the dark net web, and you have to have special access to this web. You have to get on through a special server. You have to have special access. Maybe you've heard the name Tor. Tor is the access server that you use to get onto this dark net web. In this web, users' identities are highly encrypted. So if you're on this web, nobody can find out where you live geographically, and nobody can find out what your IP address is. But on this web, people are able to share lots of personal, unencrypted information. It's so ironic, actually, that the people who operate in this realm of cybersphere, they don't want their identities exposed. So they find a place where they can do information sharing and be assured that their, their identities are considered private or encrypted while they freely share other people's secret stuff unencrypted. Now, this is a place where they say this is where drug sales take place. It's where weapon sales take place. It's where people exchange information about how to break uh, software encryption. 
It's also where child pornography media is exchanged, and it's where terrorism happens. There is a whole nother world behind the world that we see on the internet, and it is at work day and night to harm people and to wreak havoc in our world. Now, when I learned about the dark net web, I thought about Satan's kingdom. That, too, is a world operating behind the scenes of the world that we live and see and live in that is at work 24-7 to destroy people's lives and to wreak havoc in our world. We can't see Satan and his demons actively at work in many ways, but he is continuously at work to usurp God's power and authority in our world. And it's so much like this dark net website, this world that's going on all the time behind the scenes of our world. Satan is a very real presence of evil in our world, just like the dark net is a very real space of evil on the internet. But do you know that about 50% of people who, like you and me, who say they follow Christ and believe the Bible, about 50% of people who say they're born-again Christians, they say they actually don't believe that Satan is a real living being. They think that the whole language of Satan and his demons is a metaphor for evil, that it's just how we categorize evil metaphorically. But Satan is a very real enemy, and as Christians, we are often targeted by his attacks because of our association with Christ. We are part of the body of Christ, and therefore we get hits by association. So we need to know who he is, and we need to know how he schemes against us, even in the places where we don't see it as tangibly as we would like to. What does the Bible say about Satan? Let's just start there. What does the Bible say? And I'll explain to you why I'm talking about Satan in just a few minutes, and then you're going to say, ah, oh, I get it. But first, let's see what the Bible says about him. Um, the Bible tells us that Satan and a large angelic force rebelled against God. We believe this happened before the creation of the world. There was some epic rebellion, some epic battle where Satan and a, a, a force of angels rebelled against God and um, and God cast Satan and his followers out of heaven. In Luke 10:18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from lightning, like lightning from heaven. In 2 Peter 2, 4, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and he goes on to say some other things, clearly, we learn from that verse that, when, that angels did sin against God and God cast them into some gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Then in Revelation 12, 7 and 8, it talks about now a war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back and he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So we have three places, at least in scripture, where we get the sense that some epic battle occurred. There was fighting, Satan was involved, demons were involved, and God cast them out of heaven. There's some things that we can know about Satan from scripture. Um, one thing we can know is that though Satan is a terrible enemy, he's not omnipotent, which means all-powerful. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Satan is not. He cannot do 
everything, he can only do what God permits. God allows him a certain place of dominion until the time of final judgment, and that's very limited in what he can actually do. His power is restricted. He's also not omnipresent, so where God is everywhere all at once, Satan is not. He and his demons can actually only tempt one person at a time. He can't be in multiple places. He does have an army. He has a a multitude with him, but he is limited. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not omniscient, so he doesn't know anything more than we know through Scripture. He only knows what's been revealed to him. And so he knows what the Bible says. He knows what we're talking about right now. He knows that he, his end, he's been triumphed over on the cross, and he will come to a terrible demise, and he knows that. And he knows just what we know that Scripture reveals. He is loose, so that means he's free for a limited period of time, but his time is not unlimited. There will be an end to his time. The Bible speaks of that. There will be a judgment of his time. Um, because Jesus has triumphed over him on the cross, which, hallelujah, that's what we just experienced at Easter, the triumph of Jesus on the cross. This has far-reaching effects. So it's so important to understand the reality of this dark world that is working behind the scenes, trying to destroy God's goodness and his glory, and, and believers, people who follow the Lord, are also in the way of these arrows of destruction, so to speak. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is that this is why God is so adamant that his people in Israel worship only him when they entered into the promised land. This is why he's so insistent that they go into this land and they destroy all of the evidence of idol worship. Because idol worship isn't just worshiping some little tiny gold figments of someone's imagination. Idol worship is demonic worship, and the practices that are behind it lead to destruction and death. And God knows this, and he does not want his people to be destroyed, to be led away from worshiping the one true God through these demonic practices. So what we're going to learn is we look at this big span of chapters that we looked at this week, 14 chapters in Deuteronomy, there's two themes that I pulled out for us to talk about tonight. And what we're going to learn from these two themes is that there is only one true God, and he alone is worthy of our love and affection, or adoration. There's only one true God, and he alone is worthy of our love and adoration. So first we're going to talk about the fact that we are to worship God in truth. God is telling his people Just as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, he's telling them to remember that they need to worship him in truth. They need to follow his commandments. They need to do what he says, that he is truth, and they need to follow him and obey. But then the second thing that he's going to be telling his people is that they need to beware of cultural contamination. They're going into a land where a pagan nation of people have been living and worshiping their little g-gods in many demonic ways and there's contamination in the land and he's going to tell them you need to go and purge the land of this idol worship it's a matter of life and death so let's jump in and talk first about how um, we're to worship God in truth the first thing that the Israelites needed to do when they arrived in the promised land is clear out all the idol worship chapter 12 verse 1 it says these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. 
you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. So the Canaanites, they worshipped a multitude of gods and goddesses. But there were two in particular that they worshipped above and beyond everyone else. And one was named Baal and his partner was Asherah. Those were the two that really got most of their worship. So they had these Asherah poles. And these poles were set up on the highest hillsides because they believed that the higher they could erect these poles, the closer they could get to their gods. So they wanted to be as close to their gods as possible. And these poles were sex symbols. They, were, they, they invoked the desire to worship their gods in a sexual way. And so they had temple prostitutes that would engage in relations with their people as an act of worship. But they also believed that big, huge green trees were also symbols of fertility. And so they also would worship their gods sexually underneath these big green trees, which is why God says, I want you to go in and cut down the poles and cut down these big green trees. They believed that Baal and Asherah were the gods of fertility. And so by worshiping their gods in this way, they were asking their gods to bless them by giving them many children and by making their crops you know, fertile and, and full of produce for their land. So this is why Moses is making it so clear that when they enter the promised land, they're going to see these statues up on the hills, and they're going to see these big green trees, and he's making it so clear that they are to go in and destroy them because God knows their propensity for idol worship. He knows that they're going to be tempted to engage in these occult practices if they don't purge the landscape of all of these visible reminders of these pagan deities. The devil is going to use anything idolatrous to try to tempt them away from worshiping the one true God. And we know that this is a people that is so prone to idol worship. Remember, it was just a short time after leaving Egypt, which was a place of tremendous idol worship, tremendous worship of false gods, that they built the golden calf. And he knows there are people who grumble and a people who aren't so great about obeying God's word. And so he's giving them specific instructions. They must purge the land. Now, let's step back for just a moment and consider our own lives for just a minute. What about the landscape of our lives? What do we need to purge from the landscape of our lives in order to refine our focus on God? You see, we also are so easily distracted from God and we're so readily fascinated by something else, by just about anything else, right? We only have so much time and so much attention in each day and we can become so quickly pulled away from focusing on God just due to the realm of bombardment we get to our eyes and to our minds and to our thoughts. We are, we are so easily distracted. Can you think about what distracts you from thinking about Jesus or from dwelling on his word? What objects do you look at each day that really steal away your inner peace or they steal away your communion with God? Just think for a moment, what is on the landscape of your life that maybe needs to be torn down so that you have greater focus on the one true God? Consider your cell phone for an example. I mean, does it sit by your bed? 
Mine does. It's, is it the first thing you reach for in the morning? Because maybe, like me, your alarm goes off. So you grab it and you turn your alarm off. And then you have it in your hand. And then maybe that means then you look to see what emails you got overnight or what your friends are doing on Instagram. And that's how you've started your day. You've started your day in this realm of distraction instead of maybe quieting your heart before the Lord and communing with him and his word and praying about the things that await you. Or maybe you sit at your computer and you check your mail and you check your daily calendar and then, or you pay some bills. And then as you're doing really good productive things, something catches your attention. And before you know it, you're on to your favorite shopping website and you're buying things that maybe you don't really need. And then maybe a moment later, you click on Facebook and you're on an adventure with your friend who's on vacation and pretty soon minutes turn into half an hour and turns into an hour and you're following all of your friends on Facebook and you're just kind of wasting time. And then, then maybe you toggle over to a game of solitaire and you think, I could beat my highest score. And an hour turns into two hours. And then something pops up on your screen that sort of elicits your attention. Before you know it, you've clicked on something that takes you down a rabbit trail of websites that you probably shouldn't be looking at and are really hard to back out of. You know what I'm talking about. Most of the time, these activities don't begin with a desire to expend time and thought and energy on useless or destructive things. We just get distracted for a moment and then another moment. And pretty soon we're down a path we don't belong and we're wasting time and energy and money and maybe even our dignity on something that just leads to shame and guilt instead of productivity and blessing in life. That's why Paul urges us in Ephesians 4.27, he says, to give no opportunity to the devil. What high places of godless activity do you need to remove from your life? What distractions do you need to tear down? Where are you giving the devil an opportunity to build a stronghold in your life? God's first commandment is that you should have no other gods before me. God is the one true God and there is none like him and he deserves to be worshipped in the way that he prescribes. This is what Moses was, was exhorting the Israelites about. He said, in verse 4, he said, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present. See, in the wilderness, he spent 40 years with the Israelites, and God taught them exactly how to worship him in spirit and truth. They were to worship him in the exact places that he told them with the specific offerings that he ordained for the forgiveness of sins. You remember, we've been studying this all year. He has given them so much detailed instruction about how he is to be worshipped. So in verse 13, he says, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. See, the pagan nations, they 
they worshipped many gods and goddesses. They worshipped wherever they wanted, all over the landscape. Like we said, there were the poles and the high places set up. So they went wherever they wanted. And they worshipped with whatever sacrifices they decided they wanted to give. There was nothing specific guiding them. It was whatever was right in their own eyes. And so they actually even worshipped they with their own children. They actually burned their own children in the fire to worship their gods. And God said this was an abomination to the Lord, and they were not to, Israel was not to worship like these pagan nations. He says in verse 31, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Well, instead... Israel's God has established one altar of sacrifice. You remember, because we've studied it, remember the tabernacle. There's one altar of sacrifice. There's one high priest who can bring the offerings into the most holy places. God told them exactly which animals to be sacrificed for which sins that they committed and what time of year it all needed to happen. There was no mistaking. There was no making stuff up. He had it all planned out for them. And then on top of that, his Shekinah glory was shining over the tabernacle illustrating that he was with them. His presence was with them. They didn't need to go up to the high places to get close to their God. God dwelt with them in their camp. He led them all along the way. He was with them. All they needed to do was obey his instructions, which were crystal clear, and they needed to do keep their focus on God and obey his word. And then he says they would be so blessed. They would have such an abundant life in the promised land. The truth is, and this is a truth for us as well, that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. That's how we worship God, in spirit and in truth. The word worship actually means worth-ship. It means ascribing worth to God. We don't make stuff up. We just tell him who he already has told us that he is. We, we repeat back to him who we know him to be. We ascribe worth to him, and we acknowledge that he's worthy of praise. And God is actively seeking people who worship him in spirit and in truth. I love Second Chronicles 16.9, which says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God loves to be worshipped, and he looks throughout the whole earth, and he's looking for you and for me. Are our eyes turned toward him? Are we worshipping him? Are we acknowledging him? Are we knowing him? Are we praising him? He's looking for those who believe his word and who will bow before him and will, who will ascribe him worth. He's looking for those who want to know him and want to worship in truth. I think that's why Jesus... Fast forward to the New Testament. I think that's why he took a pretty profound detour one day when he was walking from Judea to Galilee. He knew that there was a woman from a community who was an outcast. And he knew that she would be at a well on a hot day fetching water, not when everyone else was fetching water, because she had a hard life. But he knew that in her heart, she wondered, how do I worship God? Because the Samaritans worshipped one way and the Jews worshipped another way. And I think she was perplexed. I think she wanted to know, how do I really worship God? And so Jesus meets her at the well. And he tells her in John 4, he explains it to her in verses 23 through 24. 
He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So how do we do that? How do we worship in truth? Well, we worship the one true God that we know from Scripture. And we don't worship a figment of our imaginations. God has told us in Scripture who he is. Back in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, we know he is merciful and compassionate and gracious. He's kind. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He's forgiving of sin. He's told us who he is, and we've seen his characteristics play out in his relationship with his people. So when we worship him in truth, we acknowledge this is who God is, and we praise him for his actions that flow out of his character. We worship with a heart that's filled with his Holy Spirit, and we exalt him above all things. Honestly, isn't that the way you just worshipped him at Easter? Was your heart not overwhelmed with joy for the cross? You worshipped him for the resurrection of Christ? That's worshipping in spirit and in truth. And I love that when we study God's word together, we really under, begin to understand what it means to worship with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because our minds have been dwelling on the Word of God all year. We have some new understandings of God's character, and then we bring our, our hearts into that by worship, by acknowledging, and by having an emotional response to who we've known God to be, and then we bring our whole being into worshiping Him in such a way that involves our bodies as we might raise our hands or stand our minds as we're thinking about who he is, our hearts as we're appreciating what he's done personally for us, it becomes a whole body worship experience. And it's unlike anything else. And it's so accentuated when we're deep and rich in the study of his word. I mean, have, has your life been touched this year by your study of the Pentateuch? I've talked to so many of you who've said, I didn't want to do this study. The Pentateuch is boring. I don't like the Old Testament. And then I'm hearing you say, oh, I have learned so much about God this year. I am so excited about what I've learned. This is changing my relationship with God. In two weeks, we're going to have a party. We're going to have, next week is our last lesson. And then in two weeks, we're going to have our fellowship sharing. And we're all going to bring food. And we're going to have tables in here. And we're going to have an evening just of sharing what has God taught you this year through his word? What has he done in your heart? How has it impacted your relationship with him? And it's going to be an evening of doing just this, worshiping him in spirit and truth. We're going to sing and we're going to testify together and we're going to be so encouraged. I'm so excited and looking forward to that night. We're going to practice this. Well, let's talk about the next part where he talks about beware cultural contamination. Because in Deuteronomy 13, Moses points out that there are two tactics that the enemy uses to draw God's people into idolatry. And so he says, you need to be aware of Satan's schemes and so that you can avoid being caught up in them. The first tactic that he mentions is human curiosity. He says in verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you, not be, that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, 
How do these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? Maybe it's a form of voyeurism, but people have such a fascination for how other people live their lives. We do, don't we? I mean, isn't that kind of why we slow down on the road when there's an accident? We kind of want to see what happened. There's so many ways in which we have this strong sense of human curiosity. My son, Adam, is one of the most honest and upright people I know. I don't think I've ever caught him telling a lie or ever perceived a dishonest bone in his body. But he has a fascination with watching documentaries about people who do horrific crimes. It is disgusting. You know, the worst of the worst. And I sometimes come into his room at night and I see him watching these horrific documentaries. And he just says, I'm just so curious about what causes someone to make decisions to kill or mutilate or do something horrible to someone else. It's so far beyond him. I think he actually has a secret desire to have been like a forensic detective. (laughs) But he is just fascinating with this. But curiosity is actually indicative of intelligence. Um, When children have an aptitude for learning, um, they're inquisitive and exploratory. And then you know that a child has a really keen intelligence. So it's understandable that intelligent people are innately curious. But there are some areas of human knowledge that are just too dangerous to investigate. And God wants his people to be wise about what is good, but innocent about what is evil. Human curiosity can lead us into temptation and sin, and it can be an opportunity for darkness and evil to set up residence in our hearts. My friend Barb, who's one of our leaders, was sharing tonight that when she was on a grand jury, they wouldn't actually tell her some of the details that were part of the cases she was looking at because they didn't want those images or even those descriptions to be permanently implanted in her mind. They were so horrific. Now, for Israel, God knew that his people were going to be curious about how the Canaanites worshipped their gods, and they would be tempted to investigate their practices. And he knew that this would eventually cause them to adopt the practices of the very people that they were supposed to expel from the land, even though God had been warning them over and over and over again not to do that. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the future. He knows their propensity for temptation. He knows his enemy, Satan, who's going to be working to lure them away from worshiping the one true God. And so he's he's adamant about saying, that's why he's saying, you've got to go in and cut down all of these pillars and all of these high places. You've got to expel this from the land Or otherwise, they're going to succumb to the influence and they're going to exchange the worship of the one true God for the worship of these demonic gods. But even though God gave them such clear instructions about what they were to do to ent- when they entered the promised land, when we fast forward through history, we find they actually don't do it. Isn't that unbelievable? That even though God is so specific about what they're to do and why they're to do it, as we look into the history of God's people, they actually don't do it. And do you know that eventually they gave themselves over to sin and became spiritually contaminated just like the people they were supposed to eradicate? Okay, we feel very personally connected to the Israelites, don't we, from our study this year? We have been with them 
in Egypt, in the wilderness, at the edge of the promised land. We grieved when they didn't go into the promised land. We're with them now as Moses is championing them and getting them ready to go take possession of the land. But this is heartbreaking when you hear what actually happened. Fast forward a few years. 2 Kings 17, 14 through 17. But they, the Israelites, would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Can you believe it? God told them, don't do this. You're vulnerable to this temptation. You must go into the land and purge it of all of this idol worship. And here we fast forward. Their hearts grew cold to God. They turned away from his commandments, and they did exactly what the pagan nations did, even to the point of sacrificing their own children. God knew the dangers. He gave them warning. Well, the second thing that God warns them against is to beware of temptation from prophets, from fortune tellers, from divinators. He says in chapter 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So going a little bit forward in Israel's history, whenever Israel would stray from their faith, God would send a prophet. And a prophet would be anointed by his spirit to speak his exact words. And those words were always to call them back to repentance and faith. It was a warning. Come back and believe and return to the God that you have known and loved in order to escape judgment or to be exiled. And so there were, there were prophets who were anointed by God's Spirit, but there were also false prophets. Some of the false prophets had been true prophets who then got carried away with themselves and began to add to what God had said. And so they ended up speaking falsehoods. And some of them were just false prophets to begin with. And these prophets would um, use signs and wonders to dazzle people as if to validate their prophecies, even though their prophecies were false. Because we know that Satan is a counterfeiter, and he can do all kinds of signs and wonders, as we saw in Egypt, right, in front of Pharaoh, that they could imitate a lot of the powerful things that Moses and Aaron were doing. So God challenges his people that they're to root their experience in the word of God. They're to hold on to his word. They're to hold on to his revelations. And sometimes we, too, encounter spiritual things that are, are used to test our faith. They're used to cause us to discern and to stand firm on the Word of God. I have an experience with this. Um, 
I grew up working in my dad's hardware stores. And when I was 16, I was working after school, and I was working on the weekends, and I got to know many of his regular customers really well. And there was a man, I think his name was Bob. It's funny, I can't remember his name, um, but I think it was Bob. And he was a painter, and he always wore these white overalls. It seems like every time he came to the store, he had a, these white overalls on, and they were all splattered with different colors of paint. And he was such an interesting man, but he was a house painter and a psychic fortune teller. He actually read people's palms. And so I was at the cash register, and so every time I would get his money, he would grab my hand and he would say, let me read your palm. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to read my palm. But he kept persisting. And then one day I was away from the cash register and he grabbed me and he said, come on, let me read your palm. And I said, all right. So he read my palm. Do you know that I remember everything he said? Everything. I remember he told me what my favorite color was, which actually was not right. Um, he told me how many times I would be married, how many children I would have, what I love to do with my spare time, and he told me how I was going to die and how long my life would be. I'm not even going to tell you the details of what he said because I don't want you to know the things that I know. I wish I didn't know them. But what was really interesting is I've never forgotten, I can't remember his name, but I've never forgotten what he said. And he showed me the lines in my hand and how each line, what it meant. Fast forward into my early years of marriage when my husband and I were in deep distress and I wanted to leave my husband. I remembered my palm reader. And I remembered that he said I would be married twice. And I thought, well, See, it's my destiny. I am destined to divorce this husband and to find another husband because that's what my palm reader said. Now, I'm a believer, right? So I'm not actually willing to act on that. But I'm going through the throes of distress because I'm wondering, was this true? Is this true that I'm going to divorce my first husband and find a second husband? And I went through this agony in my spirit over this thing. And the Lord was so clear with me. He was like, no. You need to stay with your husband. I am doing a work through you in this marriage, and I'm doing a work in Bob, and I have a plan for you. And so I anchored myself down on the word of God. But I remember what a test it was. I remember the struggle. And God says, don't do this. Don't go to fortune tellers and divinators and palm readers and tarot card readers. Don't do it. Anchor your life on the word of God. It will become a curse to you if you do. So God's word has to triumph over all because his word is truth and his word never changes. He is a rock and he is the rock that we anchor our lives upon. So the truth that I want us to learn is that God's stern warnings are actually meant to save our lives. They're meant to save our lives. They were meant to save the Israelites' lives. God calls his people to obey for one reason. He knows there's an epic battle raging. He knows that the in the heavenlies there is a real enemy who is working behind the scenes to tear down, to shame, to destroy, to crit criticize, to discourage, 
that God's people are targets, that we are vulnerable to temptation. He knows our weaknesses. God knows this is happening behind the scenes of our lives. And his warnings to us are literally like life preservers thrown to a person who's gone overboard of the Titanic. In the depth of the ocean, drowning in temptation and sin and all kinds of yucky stuff. And his warnings are life preservers to say, I'm not here to be a killjoy. I'm here actually to save your life. But unfortunately, we as human beings, we have such a strong penchant for living on the edge. You know, we live on the edge of consecration and culture. We live on the edge, consecration being our devotion to, the, to God, our, our, our dedication to spiritual growth and maturity and holiness, and culture being that pole of culture. You can put the image up, Brenton. This is what I imagine. <laughs> living on the edge. You know, rather than, than fully devoting ourselves to growing in our spiritual faith and maturity, we're always tiptoeing to the edge of culture, seeking to be relevant, seeking to be um, contemporary. Um, but too often, we, we're too prone to embrace our liberties and to dabble on the very edge of sin and temptation. I mean, maybe this becomes evident in how much alcohol that we drink. We have freedom to drink in Christ, but we, we dabble too close to the edge of what a non-unbelieving person would drink and dabble into drunkenness or dabble into addiction. Or maybe it's in the kinds of movies that we watch. We're not careful enough about things we put into our minds or the kinds of friends that we socialize with or the foulness of language that we use when we don't think anyone else is around and listening to us. Or the way we discuss contemporary issues or don't discuss contemporary issues because we don't want to offend. There are so many ways every single day where we're just sort of living on the edge. And maybe it shows up in the things we buy or the places that we go or the thoughts that we entertain. Where in your life do you find that you're just living on the edge of consecration and culture? How are you dabbling in darkness? trying maybe to prove to yourself that you can handle it. You've got this under control. You can skirt as close to the edge as you want because you're strong enough not to go over the other side. How are you being tempted to compromise your values? Or how are you becoming comfortable with things that used to shock you? In what area of your life do you need to take a step back and draw a new boundary line for yourself? God is asking us to be wise about our vulnerabilities, to be knowing about the things that trip us up, that ensnare us, that are potentially able to build a stronghold in our life. We are not that strong. We need the Lord desperately. My husband, decades ago, when we were young marrieds, in those times of trouble that I've shared with you, he traveled a ton. And when he traveled, he was tempted and succumbed many times to viewing pornography when he was on the road. And this would then cause multiple layers of problems in our marriage when he would come back home. And um, he, through much counseling and conversation, and he came to the recognition that this was a problem, that it was hurting our, our marriage. And he really decided that he didn't want to continue down this path. And so he made, he set boundaries for himself. He, he recognized 
where he was vulnerable, and he, he drew boundary lines. So one of the things that he did was he made a decision that he would never go into a bookstore because an image from a magazine might capture his attention and sort of awaken the dragon, so to speak. And then he made a decision that he never would turn the TV on in a hotel room, that he just wouldn't even turn the TV on, or that he would have them turn off the adult vision at the front desk before he even got to his room. He made a decision that he would never use a computer without some sort of governing software. So for him, he recognized he was too close to the edge. He was about to go over. It was going to ruin our marriage. It was going to ruin his sense of integrity in himself. It was not helping his relationship with the Lord. And so he stepped back and he drew some boundary lines. And he said, I'm going to put these fences up around my life that are meant to keep me from temptation. And it was so effective for him to just recognize here are the things for him that he would say, wake up the dragon. And my job is to try to keep that dragon asleep. And the Bible tells us we're to free sexual immorality. We're to free, flee temptation. All through scripture, God tells us, run, flee, step back, go the other way. Don't dabble in the darkness. You're not as strong as you think you are. Now, what Moses is telling us through this passage is a word of warning because what he's really communicating to us is the reason we have to be so careful about idol worship is that it is demonic in origin. And this comes in the New Testament where it, Paul clearly explains to us that this is demonic. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, the truth is there is only one true God, and he alone is worthy of our love and adoration. And true worship comes from a heart that's totally yielded to God, and it's controlled by the Holy Spirit, and it's based on the word of God. And false worship is dangerous because it can open us up to demonic influences. Satan is a counterfeiter. He's masterful at leading undiscerning people away from Christ and away from his truth. Just like the dark net... There is an evil that is always at work behind the scenes of our world, and it is seeking to damage our identity in Christ, and it's seeking to lure us away from our true affection for God. But God warns us about it, and he tells us that he actually equips us. In Ephesians 6, you can read that this week if you want to be reminded, he actually tells us how we can stand against the schemes of the devil by being grounded in his word rooted in prayer, filled with his spirit, we are stronger in Christ. And we need to be wise about how to live our lives in a way that's not foolish about how much we can live to the edge. And so how will you guard your heart and mind against the deceptions of the devil and devote yourself fully to the love and adoration of the one true God? Where are you vulnerable? And what will you do about it? Will you think about that this week? Will you stand and let's pray as we go out to our groups.
Father, we come before you and we just want to acknowledge that our, our intention is to worship you and worship you alone. We are in awe of who you are, of your grace, of your kindness, of your mercy, of your forgiveness, of your compassion. We've just celebrated Easter and we're reminded of the cross and what it meant that Jesus died for our sins, that we are forgiven and we are set free. The strongholds have been broken because the cross triumphs over the power of Satan. But Lord, we acknowledge that we're often deceived about what kinds of things are competing for our worship with you. We, we play to the edges in our life and we aren't careful enough about guarding our vulnerabilities, about setting boundaries, about acknowledging that we're just not as strong as we think we are. Lord, we want to consecrate ourselves to you. We want to be filled with your spirit, anchored on your word, rooted on the truth of who you are. And we want to enjoy you. We want to be devoted to you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to know how to live our lives more fully in love and adoration for, of who you are. Thank you, Lord, for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.